I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Loki, season one. I know what this place is. The timekeepers have built quite the circus. And I see the clowns are playing their parts to perfection. Big metaphor guy. I love it. Makes you sound super smart. I am smart. I know. Okay. Okay. We protect the proper flow of time. You picked up the Tesseract breaking reality. I want you to help us fix it. Why me? I need your unique Loki perspective. I'm 10 steps ahead of you. You're not big on trust, are you? You can trust me. Loki, I've studied almost every moment of your entire life. You've literally stabbed people in the back like 50 times. I'd never do it again. We are back with what has turned out to be the first six episodes of the third TV miniseries in the D-plus Marvel Cinematic Universe. With us are Victoria Lunaby-Grieve. Hello. Jerome McIntosh of Gameburst. Good day there. Jesse Ferguson of Time Travel Podcast Recorded Tomorrow. Hello, hello. And Theo Lee of our very own New Century Multiverse. Hello. And while this is a twisty-turny show with, as it transpires, no resolution yet, there is plenty for us to talk about. Of note, WandaVision and the climax there would appear to lead directly onto the next Doctor Strange movie. Meanwhile, Falcon and the Winter Soldier will lead on into the next Captain America movie. But it seems like the climax of Loki will lead into a lot of future projects in Phase 4 and have events that go beyond earth-shattering, beyond even universe-changing, but, in point of fact, multiverse-making. Just looking at the slate, it seems like this will play directly into Marvel's animated show What If, with its series of speculations on alternate courses of events for beloved characters. It will also majorly affect Doctor Strange and his multiverse of madness into the third Spider-Man movie, or should I say the twelfth, which is shaping up to be a live-action Spider-Verse, into Ant-Man and the Wasp in Quantumania featuring Kang, or a variant of him, maybe even into Thor Love and Thunder and Wakanda Forever, maybe into Moon Knight considering one of Kang's alter egos, Ramatut. Hell, Bob Chipman presupposes Venom 2 and the film that literally nobody asked for, Jared Leto as Morbius the Living Vampire, might get folded in with some connected universe or other and thus find their place in the grand unfolding fifth dimensional tapestry. All this is of course speaking my language if you know my work, but there are risks involved in making everything so convoluted and connected. 
So we are going to go episode by episode, studying one character at a time, along with the theme as a focus point. That way we can manage the two things happening here. The first being a story of slow redemption through pain and hard work for a historical villain, and the second being a major Marvel event rivaling the Avengers or Infinity War. A game changer on the grandest scale. So let's begin with glorious purpose. <laughs> and what does this episode tell us about Loki himself and the subjects of narcissism, anger, and violence? So let's start with Jerome. I believe like one of the key things you get to see as he through his realization is you get to see him coming to terms with his own like hypocrisy and his own delusion. Like the fact that he's always felt like he's had this glorious purpose like he's the orphan son of a genocide almost completely genocided race who became the second prince who thought he was in line and still stayed loyal to the Asgardians and when he was rejected he sought some form of power and the fact that he got to see like it's literally somebody took like where his path was going showed in front of the like this is where you're going like it amounts to nothing like you are a stepping stone with what you're doing right now and to extract that person sit down there in front of them it, it's obvious like that would change your entire worldview and your own perception of yourself even to the point where you've been delu deluding yourself so some part of you've recognized this before this and you don't get the gradual like it, it's a cruel thing what they do to him but it's a necessary thing because this is him at his absolute worst. Yeah, I was really worried about how this was going to go when we first started. Like when I heard about the Loki show and presumed that it was going to follow the version of Loki that escaped during Infinity War just because of the last, you know, five, six, seven years of character development that we would be rolling back and how like we don't know this this version of loki anymore and just sitting him down with you know a copy of like with a chair and a disney plus subscription and saying here you go this is you and fast forwarding back through all of that character development was ingenious in by doing so not only letting him catch up on his own character development but also just continually poking holes in the Loki that he was. And Mobius is just brilliant in this where he really like lays it out when when there is nowhere for for Loki to run to and just asks him point blank, what's your plan? You let's say all this works. What then? And it shows just how short sighted and and self-centered his entire situation was. He just says, I want my throne. I want what's entitled to me, but can't even really articulate what that is. He can't think past his own self-righteousness to formulate a, like even see the future. The, the implication that no one says out loud, but is sort of obvious in retrospect is I get the throne and then I am happy. And it takes over the course of the entire show for him to realize that the throne is not what makes him happy. And like the, the goal is like just sort of changes as he figures out and learns more and more about himself through 
the rest of the characters. I thought you dead. Did you mourn? We all did. Our father. Your father. He did tell you my true parentage, did he not? We were raised together. We played together. We fought together. Do you remember none of that? I remember a shadow. Living in the shade of your greatness. I remember you tossing me into an abyss. I who was and should be king. So you take the world I love as recompense for your imagined slights. No. The earth is under my protection, Loki. <laughs> and you're doing a marvelous job with that. The humans slaughter each other in droves while you idly fret. I mean to rule them. That's why should I not? You think yourself above them. Oh, yes. And you miss the truth of ruling, brother. The throne would suit you ill. Victoria. For me, seeing this Loki, I had to think that, okay, this is the Loki at the end of Avengers, the first time that he really got beaten by the other heroes. And the only other experience at this point was um, the original Thor. Which, at some point in this podcast, I guarantee I'm going to launch into the whole gender crit theory around the Asgardians and Thor and all of that, because it's extremely relevant. I can't wait. Just do it now. No time like the present. Okay. So, I really like Loki mainly because he is, from the original Thor, an extremely feminine-coded villain. Because Asgard in the original Thor is hyper-masculine in a way that forces uh, these kind of parallels to be drawn. Thor, Odin, I mean, even like Lady Sif and the Warriors 3. She's not allowed to be a warrior. So, yeah. Exactly. And she she, she even talks in that movie about the kind of uh, discrimination that she faced being essentially like a, a Valkyrie light, if you will. And who proved wrong all who scoffed at the idea that a young maiden could be one of the fiercest warriors this realm has ever known? I did. True, but I supported you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Loki is the only masculine figure who uses magic, something that is coded specifically and explicitly feminine because of Frigga. Uh, He is the kind of, like, favored child of, of Frigga to a certain extent. Always so perceptive about everyone but yourself. And there's something to be said about the long history of deception and illusion being an explicitly feminine trait in these kinds of, of, of media, this kind of media. So for me, Loki was always, and then, you know, I have a soft spot for Loki from the original, like, you know, Norse mythology, but we're not really talking about Norse mythology. The moment where everything sparks in the original Thor is a gendered moment. It is Thor went to Jotunheim and uh, it's very tense and like back and forth, one of the Jotuns refers to him as princess, which is a direct comment on Thor's masculinity, which then results in Thor massacring ice giants, which then caused, it it is the event that causes everything to occur in Thor 1, which causes everything to occur in Thor 2, which leads into like the entire plot and arc of Thor and Loki and- Loki capitalized on the frost giants breaking into the treasure vault to embarrass Thor on his coronation day. It's that little brother thing of, I'm going to get Thor in trouble. 
not not as malicious, but certainly devious. Right. Well, so so also think about the kind of second class citizens that the Jotuns even were. They mm-hmm. like weren't present at the ceremony in the first place. They are codified in such a way as being a kind of dehumanized second class civilization, even though it is Odin Allfather, not Odin Allfather except Jotunheim. Like, he is supposed to be, like, they are citizens under Asgard's protection, but they are treated extremely poorly because of this this thing. Meantime, the scrolls have been thoroughly humanized. Yeah, I mean, right. the, the, the Jotuns have basically been genocided at this point, and to the point where, like, Odin kidnaps Lafi's son, gaslights him into saying that, Oh, well, you could be, you, you could totally sit on this throne, even though it's absolutely never going to happen. And I'm going to hold your birth and your origin against you this whole time. It is my birthright. Your birthright was to die as a child, cast out onto a frozen rock. If I had not taken you in, you would not be here now to hate me. We are looking at a Loki who has had a lot of um, trauma related to family and a lot of very explicitly like gender coding because he was never good enough to be a warrior. And there was a lot and, and a lot of his powers are very feminine coded, like I said, and he didn't get the chance to have all of the character arcs and all of the progression. So, I mean, it is awfully convenient that he gets to just watch it and be like, oh, okay, this is the kind of character arc I would have. And the only thing, that I feel like very specifically they show you that the death of Frigga, which is definitely caused by Loki in Thor 2 The Dark World, that cinematic masterpiece. He directs the villains to what he hopes will be Thor to potentially kill his brother by proxy. And it winds up killing his mother. He is spiteful in that mm-hmm. moment without the wisdom to temper it. And that's sort of his whole thing is is eventually gaining the wisdom and the understanding and the empathy to like relate to other people on a familial level. Um, and because the other big moment from the other movies that Loki gets to watch on his Disney Plus subscription is uh, his interaction with Thor at the end of Ragnarok, mm-hmm. which like Ragnarok is like here is Loki's arc in a movie. Like he, right. you can just see that. I really liked his interplay with Mobius in this first episode, specifically like calling him out on the narcissism. Yeah. Um, almost acting like a therapist to a certain extent, being like, okay, but like, but like, I'm going to make you make you look at this. I'm going to make you you confront this, and we're, we're going to kind of talk this out until you talk yourself into a corner and realize some of these problems, like accelerating that character growth. Honestly, you're pathetic. You know, relevance, a detour, a footnote to my ascent. You finished? You're gonna start taking things seriously. All right, now you're the king of Midgard, then what? Happily ever after? Asgard, the Nine Realms. Space? Space. Space is big. Theo. I've seen a lot of talk, you know, over over the years in the course of the MCU that, you know, Loki is the, the classic narcissist. Uh, I don't think he's a complete narcissist because having dealt with a few full tilt narcissists in my day, um, they don't look outside themselves. They don't, even when presented with all the evidence and, you know, appeals to empathy, they still don't step outside themselves. Loki, when presented with this, uh, the, the prime timeline, 
and seeing the growth that the, his prime self had uh, and especially uh, his connection with Frigga because he was he was closest with Frigga and seeing that his actions led to her death that showed him it's like okay I could have done things differently I could have avoided this suffering and death and pain for other people through my actions so how do I do that from where I am now sitting there in in the TVA chair um, he he doesn't quite he doesn't have like the growth that the prime Loki had. He he hasn't gone through those experiences, so he doesn't know how to do it. So he's having to sit there and figure out. Okay, the course I was on was wrong. It was bad, uh, but I don't know how to get there. So he's having to figure that out on the fly. And so he, he's not a complete narcissist because he is able to sort of step outside himself to a certain extent. It goes even further when he meets alternate versions of himself. Mm-hmm. Because it, that's that's sort of a half step outside of himself, and that that can be a bridge. It's like, okay, this this is what I would be like if if I'd done this. How do I not do that? Not quite stepping outside of himself, but looking out the window and seeing, oh, okay, there's other people. If it's any consolation, I think you're right about the frost giants, about Laufey, about everything. If they found a way to penetrate Asgard's defenses once, who's to say they won't try again? Next time with an army. Exactly. There's nothing you can do without defying father. Yes, there is. No, stop. I know that. Look, stop right there. It's the only way to ensure the safety of our borders. Thor, it's madness. Madness? What sort of madness? Uh, it's nothing. Thor was uh, merely making a jest. The safety of our realm is no jest. Okay, so listen to how Thor defines Asgardian success. We're going to Jotunheim. What? Thor, of all the laws of Asgard, this is the one you must not break. This isn't like a journey to Earth, where you summon a little lightning and thunder and the mortals worship you as a god. This is Jotunheim. If the Frost Giants don't kill you, your father will. My father fought his way into Jotunheim, defeated their armies and took their casket. We would just be looking for answers. It is forbidden. <laughs> My friends, have you forgotten all that we have done together? Who brought you into the sweet embrace of the most exotic maidens in all of Yggdrasil? Oh, you helped a little. <laughs> and who led you into the most glorious of battles? You did. And to delicacies so succulent you thought you died and gone to Valhalla? <laughs> You did. <laughs> yes. Okay, so Asgardian checklist of success. Fighting, fucking, and eating. Think of the Asgards as we know them. Uh, and, and again, going back to that gender stuff, Asgard is the depiction of hyper-masculinity to a point of toxicity, which involves yeah. a lot of the genocides and, and the, the sort of lack of introspection that you're talking about to a certain extent. Part of that is very likely because of how utterly horrified a lot of the people who would have remembered Hela just murdering masses of people and then turning on the throne. Like, there is a cultural damage around femininity as a concept in Asgard. And that would be one of the reasons why Frigga, who is the literal queen of Asgard, being referred to as a witch in a derogatory sense, and Loki, who is a coded, more feminine figure, getting a lot more shit. And Sif, the only assertive 
woman in the the whole of Asgard, apparently, being discriminated against on a, a massive scale. So perhaps there is a lot of a cultural trauma around Hela and things like that that is driving this hypermasculinity that is preventing the growth that you're talking about. But like, if you look at it on paper, Thor has ended civilizations, and Loki's the bad guy. The problem with the the, the Asgardians is that. They've isolated themselves. They've set themselves above everybody else, literally and figuratively. Sitting at the top of Yggdrasil, a design of planets that they made. Because let's face it, space has no up or down. Yeah, they, that that kind of mindset creates like a like a circular feedback loop where it's like, well, I'll, yeah, they might interact with these lower cultures, air quotes, uh, but they don't take anything from those so-called lower cultures. They don't take anything outside in and it, it creates a feedback loop and they, they see themselves as above and it just, it amplifies all the bad qualities about a cultural personality. Like what, what I said about growing up in like as Asgardian culture, how it's amplified its masculinity to such a degree. When, when you're a person who does not fit the mold of such an amplified culture, your tendency is to either subsume yourself and go way hard in that direction, or you go all the way the other direction, which is what Loki's done uh, before he's taken out of that context and he has he has a chance to recenter himself. We could talk about episode two, The Variant, but it really feels like episodes one and two are very much a two-parter in terms of establishing the world and Loki railing against it. But we could talk about the TVA, who, despite their quirky presentation, are effectively in the business of culling everything that doesn't fall into line with a script that they define. That's terrifying. It, it plays into the cruel indifference of the TVA that it's yep. there's no like there's no like great anger or there's a terrifying thing of like Thanos of he's insane he's trying to destroy a whole bunch of people and while he plays as if he's indifferent he isn't like there is a a driving force there's twisted uh his ideology whereas the TVA as an organization except from Kang is just like we're right this is the right thing to do I mean like, these people are going to die, just prune them, or it's fine, it doesn't matter what happens to them, because they're not meant to exist, and you can justify anything with that thought process. They clearly showed that Infinity Stones mean nothing to them. A smart thing they did is they showed, like, these are paperweights to us. We're outside of reality, so they can't affect us. This doesn't exactly um, bounce off what you just said, but it's just a, a small thing about the, uh, the set design for the Citadel and the... Uh, mm -hmm. He Who Remains Room, something that I just noticed when we rewatched the last episode today. There is a, it's a very dark room. There's a lot of black, what looks like black marble. And there's a design feature of gold inlay in the floor and in the walls. And if you mm -hmm. look at the pattern on the floor, it is very regulated, very ordered, straight lines, triangles, everything seems to be um, extremely carefully crafted and very specific. And as the, um, as the pattern moves away from the center of the floor, back over the ledge behind 
uh, Kang and up the walls, it goes into total chaos. It's just this golden ribbon that flows everywhere. And on the one hand, that struck me as being very much like the, the you've just got this dichotomy of here's the extreme order and here is the chaos that, that bleeds out of that. Um, and on the other hand, it reminded me of, um, there's a, 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 I think it's Japanese, an art form. Kintsugi, basically, I was just going to make Yes, exactly. I was just going to make that comparison. Basically consists of repairing broken things with gold so that you get this, um, this seam of, of shiny and brightness and, and um, beauty within shattered fractures and cracks that no human would make on purpose. They're things that have just happened by sheer chance. Right, the implication that our broken pieces are what make us beautiful. Mm, yeah. I do love um, Mobius is uh, being defined as, as loving broken things. Um, yeah. Owen Wilson is an incredibly human actor. So when he says, I see a scared little boy shivering in the cold, and you kind of feel bad for that ice runt. That early on statement once again sells us on Loki. He's our conduit to putting any kind of stock in this bad guy beyond the fact that he's just charming, which makes him the meta viewpoint of the show. The show justifies itself through Mobius because why should we care about this broken, dangerous thing, this pathetic thing? Mobius allows us to put our own rotten shittiness on trial and come back with, hey, maybe a person can change. I love the fact that they, they have the void and they prune everything there. And the only thing that can survive that wasteland are Lokis. And right. Mobius, who spends his whole time studying variant Lokis, has become a kind of a Loki in his own right. He's and a pseudo-Loki. other person to survive the wasteland. And I just think that's delightful. But the, specifically, since we were talking about some of the set dressing and things, there is a, a mirrored shot in episode five and in episode six that I wanted to comment on. Whenever you first go to the void, they do a, um, a, I forget what it's called. It's like some, like a super Dutch angle that spins the entire camera so around. Cool. They, they do it. Yep. Yeah. They, they do it in, in season, in episode five to show you that like the void is a place of madness, a place of, of like just nothing making sense. And then as you emerge from the void into the Citadel at the end of time, it reverses it. It go, it does that same shot, but in reverse, making everything go from upside down back to upright in such a way that allows you to like, like enter and then leave the void that I, I think is, is really neat. Um, cinematically, cinematography. Yes. It's a Mobius loop. Yes. <laughs> you, you twist and it takes yeah, you on to the it. other side and then you carry on twisting and then it goes all around. And this is replicated in that window behind Kang. It's all the timelines slowly turning in on themselves and at the same time from the opposite direction, slowly spiraling outwards. But what we're driving at here is that the TVA present us with order and like most super right wing stuff, there's chaos bubbling under the surface and their own insecurities about that, causing them to clamp down in a performative act to try to contain the chaos. But the goalposts will keep moving because whenever you try to attain perfection and total order, there will always be deviation leaving them chasing their tails for all eternity. This is the futility 
of attempting absolute and supreme order and the horrendous barbarism required in order to prune variation. Because effectively they send you to a temporal gulag. That's what that ruined dump of a world is at the end of time. And the beast is just there to clean up what they consider to be undesirables. But over a long enough timeline, the definition for what an undesirable is changes over and over again until everyone is in this gulag being cleaned away, including all the Kangs that aren't the Kang that remains. And this is why all fascists will ultimately fail, but that doesn't mean everyone else will win. talking about is how the TVA and, uh, in a sense, the entire timeline is a form of uh, the culture in which we live in that that forces other people who are deviant, who are variant, to, to, to align or be destroyed. And that is why Sylvie should have been trans canonically, you cowards, because Sylvie's entire story is about being who she is just embracing who she is and then being hunted across time and space for it so because she doesn't fit into the way that re like community the reality the culture is supposed to go and uh they are constantly trying to prune her to the point where she has to live and survive under the worst possible circumstances aka the apocalypses that she lives in squatting in armageddon and harbors so much spite for uh, the people who have done this to her that all she wants is revenge over any other possible action. She finds it difficult to relate to other people, especially if they're not variants like her. And it is extremely a trans story, a metaphor that, that should and could be trans. And they are fucking cowards because they decided to make it fit more into the heteronormative space because the writers themselves are just as bad as he who remains at the end. And it made me very upset. Jotuns are inherently genderless. The actual, the, the denizens of Jotunheim are mythologically and in the MCU genderless. So that means that Loki as adopting an Asgardian shape could have chosen either way. I think it's interesting that again, none of the other variants we see in in the fifth episode are themselves also women. Um, but that means that, you know, to, they, they could and should have leaned into that choice a little more and it would have like really solidified that, that whole thing for me anyway, not that they have to write or should write for, for people like me. One person, one Loki chose to embrace this part of themselves, this, this, this character who is a villain, who is femininely coded, who embraces an aspect of power, the magic that is feminine coded and is way better at it as a woman mm -hmm. and in the actual mythology of course and even in, in Loki's um, paperwork at the beginning it describes him as gender fluid and this whole thing they, they could have embraced that narrative and extrapolated on it instead they needed her to just no she's been a woman the whole time I don't know what you're talking about going back to what I was talking about in the actual Asgardian culture if she was from the very beginning turned into like she she chose a, a feminine body after being 
kidnapped, uh, then she wasn't going to be raised with the pressure to act in a masculine way. She wasn't going to be raised with constantly comparing her to Thor. To, to her, like, think about the relationship Sylvie had with her version of Thor. It was probably way more healthy. I mean, we even see her playing with a little um, Valkyrie doll, like saving, like fighting a dragon and saving somebody when she's taken away by the TVA. I, I have to wonder what kind of upbringing she had. It was probably way healthier than Loki's. Yeah. It even manifests in her enchantments because she takes the people yeah. and she puts their personalities in a happy memory. And she might have to dig right. for that memory, but she could have stuck them anywhere because, you know, traumatic memories are just as transfixing as happy ones are. But she chooses to put people in their happy memories to enchant them like that itself, even though she is manipulating them on a literal scale, is more compassion than a lot of what Loki does. In a lot of ways, Sylvie's the main character of, of the show. Yeah, um, 100%. Yeah to the end of the world. A pity the old woman chose to die, don't you think? She was in love. Mm, she hated him. Maybe love is hate. Remember that. What was that? Love is, love is hate. Oh, piss off. So, on the subject of love, is there a lucky bow waiting for you at the end of this crusade? Yeah, there is actually. Oh. Managed to maintain quite a serious long-distance relationship with a postman whilst running across time from one <laughs> apocalypse to another. And with charm like that, who could resist you? Well, people are quite willing in the face of certain doom. I'm sure they are. It was only ever just to keep me going. How about you? You're a prince. Must have been would-be princesses. Or perhaps another prince. A bit of both. I suspect the same as you. But nothing ever... Real. Mm. Love is mischief, then. No. Love is... Uh, something I might have to have another drink to think about. He storms far to fjell, Evandrea Lene, over Isbria Tayem Ephraim, I apple hagen stamoyen den vene, och singe. Let's jump forward from episode three, Lamentis, to episode six, For All Time Always, and talk a little bit about Kang. Jerome. Uh, one of the absolute things that I loved about this was uh, Jonathan Major's portrayal of Kang as someone who's been looking forward to the end of their own saga. It doesn't matter if you kill me or not. Either I'll end up back here again anyway, and we'll go through this again. Or, like, you'll actually take the reins or kill me, and things change, and I don't have to deal with it anymore. You can see that point where he's done with his games, done with his manipulation, done with trying to convince him anything, where 
he's past the point of like knowing what's going to happen and there's that vulnerable like joy there of i've made it past it anything can happen now and i love this and just like the way that's portrayed is at a certain point he doesn't even care that sylvie and loki are there they're just audience to his realization i adore the way this parlor scene is filmed i realized as sharon and i were both sitting up propping our heads on opposing arms that exactly like you just said jerome we're the audience but we're also sylvie and loki and the viewpoint of that desk is from our perspective looking at him trying to fathom the immensity of all of this imagine playing new fallout new vegas and your saves coming you're at this one point and you're just trying to find the one thing that gets you past this point and you can't you can talk to these people you know them inside out you can't convince them that we've been through this before both of them are paranoid one wants to kill you one wants to take over at the moment like his main tool is vulnerability i'm just going to lay everything out for you like my game is there is no game he's essentially taking on ultimate accountability every single version of me is me like i may not have personally did it but I technically did, so I'm taking that on. Doesn't matter what you do, I'll just end up back here because every single version of him he views as himself, no matter what. I believe from Mobius' point of view, like the reason why he's fascinated with Loki is just their variants cause problem on the timeline. You know everything about this person, you know everything they've done, but you can never predict what they're doing. And that creates like a fascination for us. Like, how can we all, this entire organization, know everything about you and we still can't keep track of it? like lock you down like you're still probably i think like that's his fascination despite what he says he likes the fact that not everything slots into like a clear square peg hole like there are places for divergence even in the grand timeline at least that's why i've read like why he's so fascinated by like the little minutiae of life which makes him bad at being a tva agent because he is interested in these variations he has an unusual amount of empathy for someone in his line of work he wants to stop and question things he can see possible middle ground that can be reached he asks questions he delves into things that don't add up bad fascist which is the building blocks of a decent person and then there's ravana theo can I just say it makes perfect sense that one of her 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 the non-variant version of Ravana is a uh, a school principal because I have never yeah. met a type of personality more in love with controlling everything than a principal. Well, it's it's actually worse. She's a vice principal, which Ooh. means that she wants Ooh, to be yeah. and strives to be in control of everything, but technically isn't. But most of the that's, time, is the star perfect. scream of the school board. Because <laughs> Renslayer's whole thing is she knows enough to know that she doesn't know enough. That's her constant curse of I'm the person who has to deal with the people who break out of the illusion and get rid of them, but I don't actually get to know the answer. She's had this constant thing boiling in the background. We did a little extra reading on this when we went back to the. Uh, trilogy of episodes of uh, the animated show from 2012 Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes and it's a trilogy all about Kang coming from the 31st century and he wants to eliminate Captain America because Captain America ruins the world within the next 10 years and he comes on full 
cybernetic ghost of Christmas past from the future. Like that, there, this was what Marvel were in danger of when Kang started giving his big, long speech. Thousands of years ago, before the dawn of man as we knew him, there was Sir Santa of Claws, an ape-like creature making crude and pointless toys out of dino bone and his own waste, hurling them at chimp-like creatures with crinkled hands, regardless of how they behaved the previous year. These so-called toys were buried as witches and defecated upon and hurled at predators who were awoken by the searing grunts of the children. It wasn't a holly jolly Christmas that year, for many were killed. Well, that still doesn't tell me why... I'm not finished. You should have gotten a snack. A warlike race of elves from the Red Planet landed on the ice-encased Earth, and they were immediately enslaved by the unevolved Santa Ape to make his confused toys. Santa Ape did not know what a North Pole was. How could he? He was born before science existed, so he arbitrarily placed his workshop right here, long before they unionized. And Christmas was celebrated at each full moon in front of the great red ape. Wait, 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 wait. Who, who unionized? Wouldn't you like to know? Probably your mama. Dang, she makes me sad they had to open their toys in front of an ape and they were made out of doo-doo. You do that too often, people go cross-eyed. Marvel's skill so far has been keeping things focused, keeping their films self-contained, so each one has a beginning, middle, and end, and they fit into the greater tapestry. But you don't really need to know huge amounts of world-building stuff. So like I said, moving forward, there is a risk that it becomes too convoluted, too weighed down by stuff that not only happened in the past, but will happen in the future, depending on what dimension you're in. But one of the things we found out uh, during this trilogy of Kang episodes is, well, for a start, he has this wife who's in kind of cryostasis. She's floating there. It is almost exactly Nora Freeze from the episode Heart of Ice of Batman the Animated Series. It's like my beloved wife from the future. But her name is Ravonna, which potentially makes this Ravonna without even knowing it, Kang's other half, or a Kang's other half, that he appointed as vice principal, and she's forgotten. So that's why I disagree with the idea that Hunter B-15 put across to her that she doesn't need to know, she only wants to know who lies at the end of all things. She puts an enormous amount of stock in her job. She keeps her standard issue baton on like a lacquered Japanese Daito sword stand. No one has to do that. Her office is a shrine to her position. She has consumed herself with this career while everyone else seems kind of work a day, even though the concept of a day probably doesn't exist to them. So that then when the carpet gets yanked out from under her, she doesn't know where to go. Hence her Lord Azriel style, I'm going off to find free will. Who's really behind the TVA? I'm as in the dark as you are. Your whole reality's been destroyed. Tell me, how does it feel to be on the other side of it? And what if I said Loki wasn't dead? Not yet, anyway. I'd say you were lying. I'm telling you this willingly. Why? 
Because I want to know who's at the top of this. I want to know who lied to me. The branch timeline isn't reset. It's transferred to a, a void at the end of time. Nothing ever comes back from there. Episode three, Lamentis, is when it gets really Doctor Who. Like, it's been Doctor Who and kind of Douglas Adams before. This weirdly comforting bureaucracy in charge of things that we find mind-boggling. Not dissimilar to Pixar in the way that they handle monsters and death and existence prior to life. You know, but this turns out to be a lot more bone-chilling. But on Lamentis, again, it feels very like Doctor Who, and not only because one thing I always keep falling back on regarding BBC production values on that show is, especially with the older series prior to 2005, could be filmed very cheaply in a quarry. Well, this is a Marvel quarry, so it's the same thing, but purple sky. An eye-catching, video gamey, neon strip lighting on prefabricated planet dwellings. And both Loki and Sylvie here seem like the Doctor, each intent on making the other their companion. They are the ones who need to be in charge. And before you Doctor Who fans ask, no, we still aren't going to be doing Doctor Who. There is far, far too much to watch for us to be any kind of authority or give any kind of fresh perspective. So this would be a great time for me to jump in because they, they get saved because they make a Nexus event because Loki feels love, question mark. And I just want to say how uncomfortable the entire, the way that they made the relationship between Loki and Sylvie go. Mm. Like it made me so wildly uncomfortable. But like, I get the whole like, oh, they are different people. It's still like kind of a variant of self-cessed if you know, you know, fan fiction kind of things. But I didn't like it and it made me uncomfortable for a very specific reason. For so much of, Loki, as we knew him in the major MCU, what he wanted was familial love. He wanted the family. He wanted the connections. He wanted Thor specifically to like love him, to like be a brother so that he could actually have the thing that he never thought that he had. And the only person who gave him love when he was a child was Frigga and the whole thing. And so the fact that they, well, she's a lady. So clearly like it's, it's this shoehorned in like love for himself. Uh, kind of deal, uh, making it a romantic love for me felt really inappropriate on several levels because I wanted it to be more of a like, oh, you're like, oh no, I'm actually like protective of you. I, like you are my little sister, but you've been through like so much shit that, or, or big sister perhaps, but like I, I wanted it to be more like understanding of that they both came from similar trauma that they both came from a similar place but they are wildly different people we are in this together like i actually like reenacting the arc that loki had with thor but with sylvie instead on a more compressed timeline because they are so much better at relating to each other because of who they are like to me that would have been a lot more nuanced and a lot more interesting and a lot more in keeping with the, the Loki from that we all know and love uh, than to just be like, but romance, let's see the pretty people kiss. And, and yeah, I was very uncomfortable by the whole relationship. This conversation went on and on and on back and forth. And a lot of it was about the framing specifically of the kiss at the end and what Sylvie was planning to do. She goes in to kiss him, yes, 
She also then kicks him through a doorway and does what she has decided to do. And this is after a section where both she and Loki have listened to a concept unfold of horrific magnitude and come to two different conclusions, emotionally speaking, informed upon by their experiences. It is, of course, very possible to feel multiple powerful and opposing emotional responses. And the ones that drive you are ultimately the ones that win out in that struggle. Personally, I think there is a lot more complexity going on in this particular relationship than simply romance. But because this is TV, and side note, this is why we don't usually do TV, folks, it's not over. It's still going. It's halfway through. So I guess I'm just going to have to hold back and see how it develops in season two. I did note that both Loki and Sylvie were coming off like 14-year-olds, especially when he was sort of putting a blanket around her. And it's like, they've lived for thousands of years, potentially, both of them. You don't get a bit of both, exactly as Loki said, without confronting some pretty mature situations. Especially on the super male-dominated Asgard, which is why I feel like there is great potential for them to explore this beyond middle school level complexity. But I guess we're gonna have to put a pin in this one for the time being. Though I completely understand where uh, Victoria's coming from in terms of the sort of siphoning down of this bisexual self-cessed and the tenderness of learning to love yourself after years and years of not doing so. As well as this going beyond trans allegory into fairly ideal prospects for a sympathetically framed trans anti-hero. And it got made very heteronormative. Because Disney are cowards. There's a lot of people that they don't want to piss off. And it is a very volatile time right now. In terms of cinema, in terms of TV, in terms of streaming, in terms of storytelling. Progressives are pushing, pushing, pushing forwards and demanding visibility in these stories for the historically marginalized and the currently beleaguered. Trans heroes right now could save lives. And it seems to not matter if that turns up in tiny stories because no one wants to know about little indie projects. They want it in the things that everyone is talking about around the water cooler, not the little things that no one is talking about can't affect social change on this grander scale with 10,000 tiny, invisible, inaudible projects. Which of course drives indie creators making LGBTQIA championing stories intensely frustrated because we're trying to do what the studios have no guts to do. But we don't have their reach. We don't have a millionth of the level of their reach. And so while it is incredibly important, it feels futile. So you put all of us together working towards this cause from a place of integrity and a place of authenticity, not for wealth, but because these stories are bursting out of us. All of us working together is enough for a movement. It's not enough to make it every day accepted. So those of us demanding every single day more representation, they want it in Disney and Disney won't do that. Before before we run out of time for Jesse, I have a question for Jesse sure. about a lot of this stuff because you're the time travel expert, apparently. <laughs> Let's so do it. Let's do it. So so we see 
um, how the time the tempads work. That it, it moves back and forth along the sacred timeline, and it can go up branches to clear them and then return. Okay. Right. So we see at the end that. Loki gets booted through one of the time portals as we hit the threshold, but he goes okay. to a version of the sacred timeline wherein the events of the show have not happened. So either he went to a branch timeline, something we haven't seen a Tempad be able to do in that way, to go back to a, I mean, I guess th at that point they're outside of time, so it's very questionable right. as to like how it would even work. And also it's like a super duper Tempad that doesn't have any kind of like controls on it. So like, question mark? No, well, <laughs> but, but the other, option is that he went back to the sacred timeline and it has been overwritten by the by what an other Kang did, which begs so many questions. Because if we have a multiversal branching timeline time travel experience, how can you overwrite other timelines rather than making branches? That just raises further questions! And it, right. was, it was this weird friction that I couldn't really... I mean, in the end, I just went, eh, they'll figure it out in season two, and then I stopped thinking about it. <laughs> um, yeah, so, in order for the TVA to have changed, it has to exist somewhere on the timeline. And I've always postulated that the only way that, a, that you could detect changes in a timeline to like see temporal variants would be if you exist at the beginning of time as opposed to the end of time. I believe that the TVA was established at the beginning of time and is is sitting there. And, you know, when all of this happens, like after we quote unquote cross the threshold, which by the way, tangent, I have not seen a, a single frame of Lovecraft Country. So this is my first exposure to Jonathan Majors and holy shit. Um, yeah. Anyway, the what I think happened is that Loki was kicked back and the multiversal like the, the the multiverse started to form again and all and branch out because we didn't know what was happening yet and because uh Kang slash Immortus slash whatever is is no longer actively in charge of it right now. He's kind of letting it go and letting everyone decide. And that means this is like the universe, the, the actual, the new sacred timeline, because we, they've been calling it the sacred timeline this whole time. Really, it's just the timeline where this version of Kang won. It's it's this mm -hmm. Kang's timeline. So it's sacred because it's the one where he gets to be the victor. And everything that he's doing is just to ensure that his timeline is the one that wins. So in this case, quite literally, history is being written by the victors. Yes, exactly. It is literally being written by the victors. So what that tells me is that he was kicked back all the way to the beginning of the TVA, but the multiverse, the multiversal war has now happened and concluded. And this is a new TVA where a different Kang won. Hence or, the big statue of Kang instead. Exactly. Or, or at least another Kang that went back and took control of the TVA that was created. Yeah. Exactly. We'll find out. And that makes so much sense to be at the beginning of time, by the way, because that reflects the void really well, since that's at the mm -hmm, end yeah. of time. And it's also yep. a singular place with a singular entity right. the other that eats the other timelines. That's brilliant. Okay. It's a it's a big old fractal too with <laughs> exactly where it's like branches coming off of branches coming off of branches. What if this multiversal war that sparked the creation of the TVA uh, is not in the past, but they've started it now? Or or it's a, maybe maybe time is not a line but a circle, and that's why clocks are round. That's a, that's a legitimate physics theory. If you dig into string theory, there's a there there's an idea that the Big Bang is actually 
that like the Big Bang was essentially the cyclical nature of the universal expansion property that that the universe expands so much that eventually quarks start to expand and explode and explode matter out of that and and become this cyclical big bang and so the universe is literally just restarting over and over and over and over again and people said our back to the future trilogy episodes broke their brain (laughs) kang is positioned repeatedly in this scenario in the citadel as both god and the devil he approaches his speech like Al Pacino in Devil's Advocate, less hammy, more personable. Theo mentioned earlier that he has an apple there, which is particularly ironic as the apple of discord being offered to two serpents. Because Loki is a serpent, he's a snake. He will strike at you and stab you almost impulsively without even really thinking of the greater ramifications. And I love that by the end of episode six, he comes all the way around to standing in front of a blade and doing so for the sake of another. Because even when he dies in the beginning of Infinity War, he doesn't really change who he is. He's still presenting a smiling face, getting ready to stab Thanos. He's not changing enough of himself. He's doing it for the right reasons, but he's not changing. Here, he has changed. You know, Richard E. Grant Loki said that he faked that whole thing and disguised himself as wreckage in a weaselly way, hiding and then retreating to live in solitude till he got lonely and missed his brother. He wasn't changing. When President Loki shows up, he's just Loki at Comic-Con 2013, when Tom Hiddleston turned up in costume and spoke to the audience. I am Loki. of Asgard and I am burdened with glorious purpose the bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for a place in this chamber in this meager palace of Midgard Actors don't do that usually. President Loki and his cadre of idiots are representative of Loki not changing. Say my name. Loki! Say my name. Loki! Say my name! Loki! Say my name! And I love the fact that when that massive fight breaks out between all of them, Our Loki just kind of sidles left and right and through it and just realizes this is not for me anymore. Stabbing each other in the back just gets my hand bitten off by an alligator. And spending time with Sylvie is the time he should have spent with Hela as she got everything he ever wanted. This evil version of Sylvie's hidden away child. Hela got the throne Loki wanted. But if he spent a while with her, I feel like he'd realize I wasn't happy sitting on this chaise long, watching plays I make people perform that I write, and eating grapes. This violent dominion that Hela has, the very worst side of Asgard. His attempt on Earth didn't make him happy either. His connection with Sylvie was very different. The things that came easily to him because he lied to get them, or committed violent acts to make them happen. Those didn't change him, not for the better. The positive actions, telling the truth, living in someone else's shoes, going through the ringer on somebody else's behalf. 
weighing up his actually pretty cushy long, long life with family, with friends, in the place he felt he belonged, even up to the point where he found out he was from Jotunheim originally. He had a home, and she did not. These trials force him to confront that he's not making himself or anyone else happy, and now he wants to make someone happy. But then there's the matter of the astonishing level of responsibility he now has as one of the instigators of the multiverse. He's no longer simply the villain that allows heroes to become their best selves. He has to become his best self. And I think what I'm looking forward to most in season two is seeing Sylvie change more overtly from the person she ends up as here, who is not wildly different, as Victoria said, from the person she begins as. Stolen, lied to, hurt, hiding, hunted striking out in anger. So what comes after that? Now that we've reached the end of this show, I can confide in you folks that this was kind of a nightmare recording. It's currently the middle of a heat wave in many places in the world, including England, so Sharon and I were exhausted from a weekend of cramming Loki. This was like a Sunday night. And we had to podcast with the windows shut for the sake of the neighbours and without the fan to keep us cool for the sake of all of you listeners. It's probably a bad sign when your hand sanitizer starts bubbling and turning into steam. Far worse than that though, Jesse's partner suffered an eye injury, so he had to leave halfway through. Everyone was on camera when we joined Skype, so I went to grab our webcam and when I plugged it in, Skype defaulted to the shitty microphone on that thing. And also jumped the sensitivity up to 11, so pretty much everything I said was distorted, making our side of the call unusable. And because we were all in a massive rush, because we only had Jesse for a short amount of time, I didn't stop and think and go, hang on a second, Skype is treacherous, it will have adjusted everything. But Sharon and I sounded like ass, that's why you only heard a little bit of her in this. Phil says in, uh, I don't even know which uh, film, you know, uh, I've lived 1,500 years, I've killed twice as many, and I'm like, fucking hell, you have massacred thousands personally within armies that have massacred far more and it never occurred to you your dad was a bit of a wrong one for suggesting this was a good idea yeah. victoria's giving me that yeah <laughs> expression <laughs> at this point it's so much more fun with, with cameras on Luckily, I salvaged what everyone else said from what ended up as a two-hour and 20-minute very rough and rambling recording session. We were delirious. If anyone could get a third backup as well, just because uh, having to insert so many USB devices usually <laughs> stymies Skype and has them go, no, nothing recorded whatsoever. It didn't happen. I have a second. Victoria said she has a, another one going. Okay, cool. Right. Doesn't matter how many backups you get, if your mic is a load of shit and Skype has put the sensitivity up so high that everything you do tears itself to pieces. But again, I rescued what everyone else said. And the best bits are all in this show that you just heard. And as I edited, my brain wasn't cooking in my head where I sat, so I could be a lot more precise when I was making my points in editorial, after the fact. I really don't want this to happen again. My hand hurts so much from this edit. Huge thanks to all of our guests who were very understanding and apologetic, even though none of this was anyone's fault. 
several of them said, hey, do you just want to re-record the whole thing again? And I was like, no, no more. <laughs> it's nearly midnight and I'm dying. Plus, you know, we had to get it out for this week. End result, you folks got a really great show. And that's mostly thanks to our wonderful guests. Thank you once again to our Patreon subscribers. You make my hand nearly falling off worth it. And our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Giant Wolf of Asgard, Fenris, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finn Barnicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And if you did, by the way, want to check out an invisible, inaudible, independent project that champions LGBTQIA heroes, you might want to check out Stone Spring Maidens, which features the voice of one Theo Lee as lesbian crystal physicist elf Penthesily Renwick in a female-centric world that Victoria Luna B. Grieve helped me to build. Autumn. What are you going to do when they all run out? That's the great question, isn't it? Most of our wars now are fought over the mining of sizable deposits. We may not have been able to use the crystal until recently, but they have been a part of our world for so long that they have had a clear effect on our physical and mental evolution. Penny ran her fingers over the orange and green stones and set in the tactile resonance glove that she had forgotten once again to take off after work. If you think about it, you, Standers, I mean to say you and your kind, are living proof that we would be different without this one key cosmic incident. And that means our fate is tied unavoidably, inexorably to the crystals. When their power is gone, she caught herself growing overcome, and took a moment to compose and get the words right. <sighs> Our world is slowly, gently dying, passing into a final winter. On some subconscious level, I feel we have accepted that. This is why we don't consider it the last place we shall dwell. It is the land and sea we live upon, but some of us, many of us, believe we are destined to travel beyond it. Harry looked up at Luminia, glinting in the far darkness. You want to go home? Penny nodded, gazing at her intently. See? She said softly. You understand us already. And you can find the unfolding serialized podcast of Stone Spring Maidens by subscribing to the New Century Multiverse wherever podcasts are found. 
or even better, come along to firesidealliance.com. And on that note, let's hear from our guests on where you can find their work. Starting with Jesse. Um, on the Fireside Alliance Discord and the School of Movies Discord around to discuss these things, we've had a bunch of really great discussions already. So, um, yeah, I have when I have to jump, I'll still be there once people watch, listen to this and, and are be like, what about that other thing? I do a time travel podcast called Recorded Tomorrow. Uh, I don't have anything new right, right now. We are going to do a Loki episode. We have our guests lined up and we're working on scheduling and all of that. Uh, but for now, I do want to plug a one of our other fireside allies. If you enjoy this conversation and you want to see more uh, in-depth Loki stuff, uh, check out our our friends over at Montressor Media. They have a YouTube series with a very crude name, uh, but it's awesome. It's called Loki Sucks Dick, and it breaks down the series episode by episode, and Aaron and Seth talk about each episode from both a filmmaking perspective because they're both film studies like they both went to film school and all that from a narrative perspective a lot like we do and from a queer perspective where each episode they talk about like which like what queer themes are we talking about like are is the show talking about how do they address it do they do a good job what could they have done better since it's all about time you know since the the show is about time travel they take basically one of the times where each episode is set and they showcase an important uh, historical queer person uh, and what they did and what they were about from one of those timelines. It's it's a fascinating and really, really great show. Uh, it's available, like I said, it's on YouTube, on the Montressor Media site, and it's also in podcast form uh, if you want to look at that. But highly, highly recommend checking it out. And Jerome? Yep, uh, you can find me over on Game Burst. We have a new show every Sunday. So, yeah, be sure to join us for that. And sorry, Alex, just want to get this little shot in there. Remember when this all started and I said, I'd really like a Moon Knight movie? I'm getting it. Thank you very much. Yes, you were on our very original Avengers shows in 2012, back when it was still up in the air as to how Phase 1 was going to finish out. Mm -hmm. And you get a whole mini-series, which is more drama than a movie. Okay, voice actress Theo Lee. Uh, you can hear me make noises in the New Century Multiverse, and I also make other noises on occasion. So if you would like me to make noises for you, just get in contact. I'm on Twitter at uh, 1000 Days of Rain. <laughs> I can attest she makes wonderful noises. Oh, ha. I know who you are. Really? <laughs> well, you have a hood, you're a dwarf, and you won't stop bloody talking, so... Ha. Oh. She caught him by the collar and pinned his right arm behind his back. <laughs> I believe I'm in the presence of the dashing brigand Robin of the Hood. Hmm? You forgot green. I always wear green as well. <sighs> ah, oh, <sighs> let go of me. No. Let go of me. No. Please? Oh, all right. Really? No. Good gravy is it hot tonight. See, Alex, people people don't talk about how climate change is ruining the podcast industry. I mean, I really think that we need to get on this. Yes, I know what you mean. In many ways, we're the worst affected. <laughs> Definitely, yes. Victoria Lunaby Grieve, take us home. Uh, I mean, it's just my normal, like, you can always uh, find me on Twitter at Vixenwitch. Uh, the W is two Vs. 
the stuff that I do, at least for now, although I keep having podcast ideas, so who knows how long that's going to last, uh, is just on this show, School of Movies. I come on whenever Sharon and I need to talk about uh, the trichotomy of women and psychology and gender stuff. Um, I'm so excited for Birds of Prey. That's going to be a really fun conversation whenever we get to have it. Well, if you have a podcast cooking up along those lines, there's got to be some kind of independent media network out there that would be an ideal home. Some kind of like band, some some like peace treaty around some kind of cooking implement, perhaps, might be a, uh, a, a good way to go. <laughs> Although I don't know if anybody would be interested in me just yammering on about the destiny lore for an hour and its greater implications for gender theory, but... Uh, the hot pot league is your friend. Uh, the the whole conversation after Loki with with Lynn was just like so so would we be variants? Is that what's going on? Like would the would the canon versions of us be cis? Like what's going on here? And it was just very funny. It does seem like the TVA are working their way slowly through all the freaks like us. In a way. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe I'd end up in the void playing Polybius in a bunker that used to be a bowling alley and drinking ecto-cooler with Kid Loki. I mean, I'd be here for it. (laughs) Well, next week, since it's been far, far too long, we continue our summer of superheroes with the first of four shows on Shazam, Aquaman, Birds of Prey, and Batman the Animated Series. Until then, I have been the best variant of Alexander Shaw. And I have been the pruned version of Sharon Shaw. You were totally pruned. Pruned out this whole show. Totally pruned. I'm so sorry. Just so, so Had to send you to the end of time. And, yeah. <laughs> you, you evaporated out of the whole thing. <laughs> and school's out.
Okay, Meatwad. This is all a bunch of bull. You don't believe? Believe what? That you're a ghost and that Santa Claus is an ape? That's Was the most ridiculous... an ape. Now he is a machine. I love cookies and a glass of milk for a machine. No, man, he's an ape. I mean, wait, he is a machine. You are trying to mess me up on purpose. But I thought everyone back then was undeveloped. Couldn't make machines with their crinkled hands. But the elves came from the red planet, and there was much defecation. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned that. How long ago did you say this was? Thousands of years ago. No, shut up!